What if one morning we woke up and discovered that we could go anywhere and do anything? Pretty soon upon realising that, the question would likely arise, where might we go? What might we do? And then, as we thought about that, maybe some kind of journey might suggest itself. We might imagine, for instance, going off to some place and never ever coming back. Or maybe the journey that would suggest itself would be something more like a quest. We go off with a particular aim of finding something, discovering something, but always with the idea of returning, bringing back whatever it is to home. So in this case it would be a circular kind of journey, or maybe just to wander, just to move from place to place, staying in each for a while, but then simply moving on with no fixed intention ever to arrive at a final destination or ever to return back home. It's ideas around different kinds of movements within experience that we'll be exploring today. Because, in a very real sense, that hypothetical situation that we opened with, the idea of being able (laughs) to go anywhere and do anything, it's actually the case in every single waking moment of experience. Evidently, we have consciousness, awareness, and we find ourselves in a universe that we're conscious of. This capacity for consciousness and the provision of things to be conscious of are the raw ingredients of experience itself. And consequently, no matter who we are, or where we are, or what our circumstances happen to be at a particular moment, there is always, at least potentially, the possibility of moving our awareness around the universe from one thing to another in order to yield all sorts of different kinds of experiences. This idea seems to have found some mythological expressions. For instance, in Thelema we have the conception of the Egyptian goddess Nuit and the god Hardet. Nuit is envisaged as the undifferentiated expanse of the universe. Her body is the 
starry night sky that stretches over everything and encompasses everything. And Hardit, meanwhile, is envisaged as something that might be considered the converse of this. He is the winged globe, this tiny concentrated point that can fly anywhere through space. Every man and woman is a star, it says in the Book of the Law, suggesting that every human being is a kind of conjunction of the fixed, dimensionless point of Hardit in the unlimited, undifferentiated expanse of Nuit. Maybe something similar finds expression in the Norse myth of Odin's ravens. Their names are Hugin and Munin, translated usually as thought and memory. In the poetic Edda, Odin says, Hugin and Munin fly each day over the spacious earth. I fear for Hugin that he come not back, yet more anxious am I for Moonin. A memory is what's left in the mind when we come into contact with something, and thought is perhaps our means of processing or becoming aware of memories. So, again, we have this notion of a field of things and a process by which something specific from that field can be singled out. In this myth of Odin's ravens, however, it seems to be more a model of the mind that's being offered rather than a model of reality. Every day, says Odin, Hugin and Munin fly around the world, just as every single day, every single human being brings their consciousness to bear upon the world. Odin's worry is that Hugin, thought, might just fly away and never come back, as indeed our thoughts sometimes can become detached from the way things actually are and potentially cause us to become lost. Yet more anxious am I for Moonin, says Odin. Memory, it would seem, Odin regards as even more vulnerable. Understandable, maybe, when we consider how unreliable memory can be and how more frequently it can fail us, perhaps, than in the case of thought. But let us suppose, however, that memory hasn't failed us, that our thought is active and sharp, and hasn't lost connection with the way things really are, that our awareness and understanding is strong, and has brought us to where we wanted to be, and that the external world also is presenting us with opportunities to uncover whatever it is that we were hoping for. In that case, 
everything will have lined up to give us a powerful sense of what we described earlier, that feeling that we can go anywhere and do anything. This is potentially available to us in every moment, but it becomes especially apparent when we realise some goal we may have set ourselves, when we enjoy some particular success. In the tarot, the card entitled The World presents a set of symbols that encapsulate the nature of these moments, but also that suggest some of the challenges that these moments can also paradoxically present, and maybe also a repertoire of responses that it might be useful to consider. The card at its centre depicts a naked woman with a narrow drape loosely wrapped around her that conveniently conceals her genitals. And some commentators on this card have stated that the reason for this concealment is that the genitals of this figure are male, although the tarot decks that make explicit the hermaphroditism of this figure seem to be somewhat rare. But certainly, in the case of the Marseille deck, the facial features of this figure do indeed seem quite masculine, so it is an interesting possibility to consider. Hermaphroditism symbolically might suggest a human being who is unusually complete, integrated, whole, rather than in the more common situation of being biologically either one sex or the other. But more self-evidently, what we can say about this figure is that she's dancing with her right foot forward and her left foot behind and off the ground. She's apparently dancing with joy all around her, encircling her in an oval or almond shape is a garland or wreath that suggests some kind of triumph maybe or success or commemoration or completion, and then things go a little strange, because outside of this garland, positioned in each of the corners of this card, are four figures, the so-called four living creatures or living beings described in the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, but that also make an appearance in the New Testament book of Revelation. They are the eagle, the man, the lion, and the ox. And in many depictions of this card, 
a spatial relationship between these four figures in the corners and the naked dancer in the centre are difficult to determine. It's almost as if these four living creatures are superimposed upon this image. That the space outside of the garland in which the central figure dances is some kind of abstract or non-space. Possibly outside of the everyday world. Given the title of this card, the world or the universe, we can't escape the question of why that concept would be associated with this image. How is it that a naked human figure dancing inside a garland, surrounded by these four strange biblical creatures, can possibly offer us a meaningful depiction of what we might understand as the world. It really is an enigmatic image, and to arrive at a deeper understanding of it, it really does seem that we have to return to what we considered earlier, that in those moments, when we attain some kind of success and the world is laid out all before us, then what confronts us is a question of movement, a question of where do we go? And movement, of course, is something that's quite difficult to represent in a static visual image. Nevertheless, in this card, certain directions and types of movement are being suggested. And if this all seems a bit abstract or a bit far-fetched, isn't it actually the case that we see this kind of thing all of the time? In sports, in contests, when there's a winner, when someone attains success, that's often marked by some kind of movement or alteration in the relationship to physical space. When somebody wins something, we consider it perfectly natural if they start dancing on the spot, or after triumphing in a sporting event, somebody might go around and around, start off and then come back to where they began in the form of a lap of honour, and also as part of the victory celebrations, we might see a podium where the winner is elevated, they literally go up above the other contestants in order to receive their medal. There would seem to be a very strong archetypal link between achieving success or some sort of goal and then some kind of spatial adjustment as a consequence of that. Possibly then what this archetype is laying out before us are some of the different types of adjustments that success might demand of us, represented 
on the basis of an analogy with movement. So, one of the things we can do on achieving success is to stay where we are, to prolong that moment, to enjoy it, and that's when we might dance for joy on the spot. And why not? Because we've probably earned it. What is somebody doing when they perform a victory dance? If not owning that moment by moving in a way that's uniquely theirs. It's almost as if they're saying, this is my moment and I'm demonstrating that by moving through it in a way that only I can, a way that's uniquely mine. However, in the archetypal image that we're considering, another factor comes into play, which is the objects that that central figure is holding in her hands. In the Rider weight deck, she has two wands, one in each hand, and they're both pointing vertically upwards. Similarly, in the Marseille deck, in the dancer's left hand, another upward pointing wand. However, in her right hand is some sort of small container. The anonymous author of Meditations on the Tarot goes so far as to describe this container as a filter containing a love potion. In Crowley's Thoth deck, a similar dualism perhaps. In the dancer's right hand, she's holding a curved blade, like some kind of scythe, whilst with her left hand, she's touching the body of the serpent that is dancing with her. Those upward-pointing wands are strongly suggestive of a upward and downward motion, and bring to mind perhaps that famous axiom from the Emerald Tablet of Hermes Trismegistus, as above, so below. The suggestion here perhaps is that, yes, this is our moment and we can enjoy it and we can dance, but how might we want to translate our success, upwards or downwards? It's probably not difficult to bring to mind examples of people who have taken their success in one of those directions. On the one hand, those who have used the power of the wand to connect their personal success with something beyond that, something higher, a connection with something good that's of benefit to more than just themselves. And on the other hand, there are those who have chosen the downward slanting power of the love filter or the serpent, translating success into personal benefit and material pleasure. The risk of this course is that it can deplete the very capacities and abilities that enabled us to 
achieve success in the first place and then we might encounter that not totally uncommon figure of the person who is actually ruined by their success. The next type of movement suggested in this archetype is that conveyed by the garland that encircles the dancing figure. It wraps its way all around her. It encircles her, going around something or starting out from a particular point and returning to it in a circular motion. This is a form of movement, a trajectory that perhaps confronts us with ontological questions, questions about the status and condition of our being. When a triumphant athlete makes a lap of honour, during that time the focus of the spectators is exclusively upon that athlete. And the suggestion here perhaps is that when we attain some sort of success, then we too might consider taking a lap of honour. Rather than relying on the spectators, of course, it'll probably be up to us to make our own assessment of ourselves. Achievement of our success has very likely pushed us to our limits, in which case now there's a more than usually vivid opportunity to take stock of those limits, where they are, what they are. We can get a better than usual sense, maybe, of the nature of this garland that surrounds us, that marks our circumference and our current edge. When we take a circular journey, a journey that begins at home, moves out into the world, but then returns ultimately back to home. That, by its very nature, invites us to assess the difference in who we were at the beginning and who we are now at the end. A circular journey is one that provides us with insight into how we've grown and what we've now become. And then, finally, in this image, floating in that weird non-space depicted in the card beyond the garland, those four strange living creatures, the man, the eagle, the ox and the lion, occupying the outer edge of the card. Perhaps we might suppose that the form of movement being suggested here is perhaps the one most removed from the mundane world. When we turn to the description of these creatures in the first chapter of the book of Ezekiel, what we discover is actually not a description of four different creatures, but four identical creatures with four different faces. Their wings, says Ezekiel, were joined one to another, 
they turned not when they went. They went everyone straight forward. As for the likeness of their faces, they four had the face of a man and the face of a lion on the right side, and they four had the face of an ox on the left side. They four also had the face of an eagle. Thus were their faces, and their wings were stretched upward. Two wings of every one were joined one to another, and two covered their bodies. And they went everyone straight forward. Whither the spirit was to go, they went, and they turned not when they went. Also, accompanying each of these identical four-faced creatures is what Ezekiel describes as a wheel. Of the wheels, he says, their appearance and their work was, as it were, a wheel in the middle of a wheel. When they went, they went upon their four sides, and they turned not when they went. This description of the wheels as a wheel in the middle of a wheel is generally interpreted to mean a structure like a wheel intersected by another wheel at right angles. In other words, something that has the potential to move in one of four directions without turning, which of course is exactly how Ezekiel described the motion of the four living creatures themselves. They too move without turning in the direction of whichever of their faces presumably is the forward-pointing face. It's intriguing how often Ezekiel repeats that detail of moving without turning, as if this were the chief characteristic that he wanted to convey. And we might consider whether that's also the reason for the inclusion of the living creatures in this card, this archetype, not simply because of their biblical holy status or because of the traditional Christian correspondence that's been drawn between the four living creatures and the authors of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Could it be that we're being invited to contemplate here another form of movement, a very strange form of movement, the potential to move in any direction, in a straight line, without turning. As Ezekiel put it, whither the spirit was to go, they went. A being with four faces doesn't need to turn because it has a face for each direction that it might want to move in. And those faces are suggestive of creatures with very diverse natures. Earlier, we considered how movement in a circular direction might encourage us to confront ontological questions. Could it be that the form of movement we're considering here 
encourages us to confront teleological questions instead on achieving success. As we've seen, it can be very constructive to reflect on how we might have grown. But here, maybe, what we're being encouraged to reflect upon is what we might not have developed yet. If within our nature we're able to cultivate a diverse range of qualities, then we can rely on one of these to kick in and carry us forwards whenever it's needed, in the same way that these strange four-faced beings can just instantly change direction by putting their best face forward without having to turn. Ezekiel's description suggests that these beings are very close to the divine and in that case can serve only as an ideal rather than something fully realisable. To the extent that we approach that ideal then, maybe we start to push against the limits of what it means to be human.